Well, welcome everybody. It's good to see you guys this weekend and everybody watch online. Uh, thanks for taking the time to join together and it's great to connect together with each other this weekend. We, uh, we are looking forward to an exciting spring here at Grace. And uh, one of the most exciting things is that we're breaking ground next week on the, uh, the sports center and the new nurseries, which is super duper awesome, part of All In, All Out. So I want you to be a part of that and uh, bring uh, a shovel, bring your own shovel. Let's bring your own shovel and uh, come out to that and bring the kids. And we'll do that in the afternoon on uh, April 18th and kind of surround the building a little bit and have some fun with that. So be a part of that. It'll be a blast. And then it's going to get crazy. So after you bring your own shovel for about the next 20 months, you need to bring your own patience because it's going to be nuts uh, getting together here. But we'll fill you in on that. And, uh, and uh, it'll, it'll all lead to an exciting outcome. So super stoked about that. Last Easter, last week was Easter. And we kicked off uh, this series called So Close, Things That Get In Between Us and our and God. And we were talking about our fears, our doubts, our struggles, our hesitations, where we can get close to God, close to salvation, close to embracing the life that God really has called us to, close to faith, and yet we can be so far away. And we talked about how there's a fine line, right? There's a fine line between winning, losing, victory, defeat, a fine line between a, a tragic story and a hilarious story, and it's kind of where you land, which side of that line that you land on. In fact, I was a little shocked last week. I, I told a story about blowing myself up when I was a teenager by dumping too much gasoline on a fire, and I was shocked how many of you have done that, and then how many of you went home and did that this week? And so that was not the point at all, uh, but there's a fine line, right? And so we talked about that, and we talked about how our faith is like that, We can be right there, but not be able or not choose to grab hold of all that Christ wants to give us. I want to show you another so close moment in the scriptures. I want to introduce you to a guy. This guy was really, really set up to to believe in Jesus, right? So he had a great background, would have gone to like religious schools his whole life. He would have known the Old Testament part of the Bible inside and out, lots and lots of training, would have gone to seminary, would have had like an ancient equivalent of a PhD. He had all the information. He had all like the clues of who Jesus was. He was right there. He was so close, but there was something standing in between him and really grabbing hold of who Jesus was and why he came to be with us. So John chapter 3 is where we're going to hang out. John chapter 3, if you want to use the Bibles there in the chairs, it's page 862. And uh, this is all on your app or it's on the website if you're watching online or you can use your Bible, of course, at home. But John chapter 3, and I want to introduce you to this guy named Nicodemus. And so the Bible tells us a little bit about Nicodemus, verse 1 Chapter 3, book of John says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish royal, uh, ruling council. So Nicodemus was a Pharisee. If you maybe are a little bit familiar with the New Testament, there's two kind of groups of people, uh, Jewish leaders that Jesus bumped heads with a lot. 
the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And for just in a nutshell, these guys were the elite of the elite. They were the Jewish religious leaders of the day, which would have also made them kind of the political leaders of the day. That's who they were, but they were kind of above everybody else. The Sadducees and the Pharisees would look to each other and they would pick the best of the best of each one of those groups, the best Pharisees, the best Sadducees, and they would form a ruling council called the Sanhedrin. And so Nicodemus was a Pharisee and he was a Sanhedrin. He was on that ruling council. And if you kind of want to know what they did, they would have been like uh, the, the final authority in Jewish theological questions as well as cultural issues. So they were kind of the end of the line, the top of the food chain, the best of the best of the best. And so that was Nicodemus. And he was the, one of the Pharisees represented there on the Sanhedrin. So he would have been the best of the best, right? He would have been the best student. He would have been the most devout of the devoted. He would have been the most pious. He would have been a great teacher. He would have been all those kind of things. That's who he was. He knows about Jesus then, and he wants to interact with Jesus. So the Bible says in verse 2 that he came to Jesus at night. He said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you're doing if God were not with him. So he comes to Jesus at night, probably because Jesus was busy and he was busy. Maybe he didn't want to see, be seen publicly with Jesus, but he's not anti-Jesus. Nicodemus isn't. He just wants an appointment with him. And so he gets together with him and he talks to him, but he actually talks to him in a very respectful way. He calls him rabbi. So rabbi, we would just say teacher. Uh, in our context, we'd probably say pastor, right? So rabbi, and he addresses him in a respectful way. And he basically says, rabbi, we, the Sanhedrin, have been observing you and listening to you. If you read the accounts of Jesus's teachings and miracles, there were usually Pharisees and Sadducees around in, in those crowds. So we have been watching that and we know that you have come from God. So the things that you're teaching are insightful and brilliant and new and in line with what we believe, what the Old Testament says. And so we know that you come from God and we know that these miracles that you're performing, that that has to, God's got to do that stuff. Like we, we know or saw you heal people. We know about like the feeding of the 5,000 and the, the great catch of the fish and all these different miracles Jesus did. And he's like, we either had eyes on that. Nicodemus may have even seen it. We don't know. But he's like, it's pretty obvious that you, you are from God because of what you're teaching. See, and what you're teaching is from God and what you're doing that God has, has power in, in you. So Nicodemus, the most devout of the devoted, right? The Pharisee, the Sanhedrin, he looks at Jesus not as an enemy, but as a, as a curiosity. And he's exploring Jesus. He's like, I, something's up with you. Uh, it, it, what you say, like, I'm a teacher. 
I'm a, I'm a PhD, and what you say is fascinating. Like, you have insight that comes from God. I would recognize that, Rabbi. I would respect that to a degree. And these miracles, man, like these miracles, like you can't, like I'm not even denying that they're fake. We know that they're real, and that has to be some kind of God thing. So Nicodemus ex- kind of acknowledges Jesus, respects him, and is exploring him and is super open that Jesus is something different, right? So he, he's pro-Jesus. He's not anti-Jesus. But is he believing that Jesus is God? It's a very different question, right? And I would argue that right now, based off of his interaction with Jesus and what we'll see here in a minute, that Nicodemus was thinking of Jesus probably more like an Old Testament prophet. They did some miracles. They spoke on behalf of God. Nicodemus would have been really familiar with all of that. And he's like, man, Jesus, you're like, you're impressive. Maybe you're like one of those guys. But are you the Messiah? Are you my savior? Are you actually God? I'm not there at all. But I, I think you're kind of like on our team, right? And I'm really, really curious what you, what you, uh, who you are and uh, what you think about all of that, right? So that's Nicodemus, and he kind of comes with that premise, and he likes Jesus but doesn't accept him yet as God. Now, what happens next is really, really fascinating, and I got to explain it for a second, right? So what's going to happen is Jesus is going to, like, shift gears instantly, and to our Western North American ear, it's, it sounds weird, right? So we would have a conversation. We'd be like, oh, so what kind of things do you think I did with God? And how are the kids? And what do you think about, you know, the Browns? Because that would be in the Bible, of course. And so, like, we're, like, figuring all that kind of stuff. That's how we would talk about it. Jesus and Nicodemus are going to talk like two rabbis, And they're going to talk like two Middle Eastern ancient Jewish rabbis. And so what we're going to observe is a rabbinical conversation, okay? So the way that a rabbinical conversation would work a lot of times is one rabbi would make a statement or he'd put a premise out. And then the other rabbi would respond to that premise by asking a question about the premise, Okay, so if, you, if you've ever taken philosophy or you're just a nerd and you read these kind of things, this is what's happening right now. If you're a normal person, it all sounds weird. If you're a geek like me, it sounds like a rabbinical conversation, right? So that's what's about ready to happen. So Nicodemus and Jesus are talking. Nicodemus kind of lays out where he's at. Now, Jesus is God, so he can read his mind and read his heart, which is always puts you at a disadvantage, right? So Jesus can read his mind, read his heart, kind of knows what he's really after. So Jesus asks one rabbi uh, to another rabbi, he asks him a rabbinical question by making a statement. And Jesus is like, okay, here's my statement, right? Let's react to this. And Jesus' statement was this. He replied, very truly, I tell you, No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again, right? Just boom, laid it out there. Next verse, boom, right? This is my rabbinical statement. 
No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So Jesus looks at Nicodemus. He's like, okay, here's going to be the basis of our conversation. I want to lay something out to you. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. If you translate these words born again into a a strict kind of Greek, it would say born from above. So no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born from above. And Jesus throws that statement out and he wants to have a conversation with Nicodemus based off of that, right? Now, before we go further, let's talk about what the kingdom of God is because it's really, really important to this conversation. So Jesus says, nobody can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again or born from above. What's the kingdom of God? Here it is. The kingdom of God is citizenship under God's rule and reign with all of his blessings, protections, and benefits acquired through birthright, okay? The kingdom of God is a massive conversation. We could talk about it for years, and I could write volumes of books with really big words, but other people have done that. That's why I haven't done it. But other people have done it, right? And it's this big, big conversation. But if I was gonna put it in a nutshell, the kingdom of God is citizenship under God's rule and reign, with all of his blessings, protections, and benefits acquired through birthright, okay? So my North American, United States of America citizenship, my citizenship was acquired through birthright. I was born here. Therefore, I am a citizen, which means that I am under the rule and reign of the laws of North America, right? And it also means that all the blessings of being an American, all the protections of being an American, and all the benefits of being American belong to me. So I have rights, right? Uh, My government will protect me. If I'm in another country and somebody would hurt me or mess with me, the State Department would be like, that's an American citizen, So we will protect and interact. And so Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, listen, in the kingdom of God, you're born into the kingdom of God, which means you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. You place yourself under God's rule and God's reign as a citizen of the kingdom of God. And all the blessings, protections, and benefits of being a citizen of the kingdom of God are yours because you were born into it. But Jesus says to Nicodemus, I want to make something clear. In order to be a part of that kingdom, you must be born again, right? Now, when Jesus made that statement to Nicodemus, that would have been mind-boggling to a Pharisee. Because what Nicodemus believed and how Nicodemus was raised was that he was a part of the kingdom of God because of his nationality and because of his religion. So Nicodemus believed because I was born, we would say, as as a Israeli. Israel is the chosen people, chosen nation of God. I'm a part of the kingdom of God. I'm a citizen of God. I am blessed, I am protected, I am under God's rule, that's who I am. And then he would add to that, and he would say, not only that, I'm Jewish. 
and I was born a Jew. My parents were Jews. My grandparents were Jews. My great-grandparents were Jews. He would have traced his Jewish lineage all the way back to Abraham. And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm born into the kingdom of God. Geographically, I was born. I live in Jerusalem. Like, I'm born into the kingdom of God. Not only that, I'm not just Jewish. I'm like super duper into my religion. I'm a Pharisee, which there were very few of, and I'm a Pharisee of a Pharisee. I'm in the Sanhedrin for good night. And Jesus is pressing in on all of his preconceived ideas. And he's saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, listen, everything that you think gets you to heaven doesn't. That's the premise of our argument. And I'm saying that it doesn't matter where you were born in an earthly tradition or geography. If you want to go to heaven, if you want to be in the kingdom of God, you must be born again. That's the premise of our conversation. Now that's one rabbi makes a statement to another rabbi. Nicodemus being a rabbi responds then with a question. And this is a rabbinical teaching. It's a style of teaching. So Nicodemus responds to Jesus' statement with a question. How can someone be born when they're old? He asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Nicodemus says, no, no, no. You're born into the kingdom of heaven. You're an Israeli. You're born into the kingdom of heaven. You're a Jew. How can you be reborn? It's all physical. That my mother and father made me a part of the kingdom of heaven. My grandparents and their faithfulness and observation and passing on the faith made me a part of the kingdom of heaven. How can you be reborn? And Jesus says, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh but the spirit gives birth to spirit. So Jesus leans in, he says, Nicodemus, listen, flesh gives birth to flesh. Your mom gave birth to an Israeli. Your mom gave birth, she's a Jewish woman, she gave birth to a Jewish child. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Americans give birth to Americans. Baptists give birth to Baptists. Presbyterians give birth to Presbyterians. Grace Church people give church, you know, Grace Church people. Flesh begets flesh. Dogs give birth to dogs, right? Birds give birth to birds. The devil gives birth to cats, right? So flesh begets flesh. It's the way that it works. So Jesus is looking at Nicodemus and says, who cares who your mom is? What's that got to do with anything? God is, God's not your mom, the kingdom of heaven's not Israel. What, who cares? Flesh is flesh. And so only flesh can give birth to fleshly things. But to be in the kingdom of heaven, Nicodemus, you must be reborn from above. And that's the spirit. The spirit gives birth to spirit. You finding your salvation and your relationship with with God through your mom or dad or geography or religion 
It has nothing to do with anything. Because salvation is given by Christ and by the Spirit of God. And so for you to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, Nicodemus, you must be born from above. See? You must be born again. And Nicodemus had never thought about this. He knew about God. He knew that there was supposed to be a Messiah who was Jesus. He just didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah yet. And he even knew about the Spirit of God because the Holy Spirit's through the Old Testament too. But he was taught that the way you please God is that you, you perform for God. First of all, you got a bloodline because Baptists give birth to Baptists. Jews give birth to Jews. So you got a bloodline. And then you practice the religion of that bloodline with devotion and piety. I'm going to really work at my religion. I'm going to really work at my faith. I'm going to really, really give myself to it. And in his case, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to make it a profession. I'm going to be the best of the best so that I can be the most elite of the elite. Flesh gives birth to flesh. The idea that somebody else was the provider of your salvation. That the spirit of God, that Christ, that you would find salvation outside of yourself and need to be born in that way was a very, very strange and very, very distant concept to Nicodemus, right? Jesus looks at him, reading his face, reading his mind, reading his heart, and he says, Nicodemus, you shouldn't be surprised at me saying you must be born again. Does that shock you? Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you write the rules, man. You're the Sanhedrin. You write the rules. And you write the rules and you know that nobody, including yourself, can keep the rules. Nicodemus, you write all these rules about the Sabbath. The Sabbath alone has 36 different categories of rules. You, know, you wrote them. You approved them. You voted on them. You know nobody keeps those things perfectly. Nicodemus, you wrote all the rules about moral conduct. Don't look lustfully at a woman. If, you're somebody, if, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. You wrote all these things. You know that you do that. You wrote all the rules about generosity, and then you keep tabs on who gives at the temple, and you know that people give 10%, and they're not being generous or paying their temple tax. Nicodemus, you know that these rules don't affect your heart. They don't make you Christ-like is how we would say it. They don't cause you to love God or love people. You, you can't possibly be surprised that I say you can't earn your way to heaven, your mama can't get you there, and where you're born is irrelevant. 
that doesn't shock you, does it? If we went out on the streets today and we took a survey of people and we said, hey, how do you get to heaven? How do you become part of the kingdom of God? Here's my bet. I bet you, Sushi, that 90 plus percent of people would say some version of the way you get to heaven is by being good. If you're a good person, right? And we'll talk about each other that way. That guy's a good guy. They're a, they're a good person. They just, they just have wounds. They're a good person. They just messed up. Down deep, they're a good person. And we'll talk about our, each other that way. And then we'll talk about ourselves that way. Well, I meant well. well I'm a good person. You think of yourself, I'm trying to be a good person. We'll say things like, I want to be a better Christian. I need to be a better dad, better, you know, whatever. Like, I need to be a good person. We'll usually talk in terms of goodness. Jesus is looking at Nicodemus and saying, Nicodemus, you're like the king of good, man. And nobody does more good than you do. And you know you're not that good. Because you can see in your heart a little bit. And besides that, who's defining good? See, the problem with good, if we say we're going to be good, and good gets you to the kingdom of God, good gets you to heaven, the problem with good is, is that good is relative. Right? Yeah, what's good? What's it mean to be good? If you're a radical... Muslim militant and you go and kill the infidel, you did good. If you're a a radical Christian 500 years ago and you join the Crusades and you go and kill Muslims to take over the Middle East again, you did good. If you're in the Sanhedrin and in a little bit, you're going to crawl for the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. You're being a good Sanhedrin. What's it mean to be good? See, good is relative. So my definition of good and your definition of good can literally be opposite definitions. But it doesn't mean that we're good or we're right with God. And Jesus is looking at Nicodemus. He's saying, Nicodemus, you're good, man. I mean, you're the, you're the most devout of the devoted. But your righteousness comes from yourself. You are defining your own definition of good. You are trying to be self-righteous. And Nicodemus, flesh gives birth to flesh. You do something that you call generosity, you know down deep you're doing it so people will see you and give you credit for it. You do something that you call religion, you know down deep you're doing it because you did something else and you're trying to even the ledger. You make a rule about some moral piety and you know down deep that in your heart and probably in your actions, you're actually doing that as well. You stand up and teach and you're condemning something that you participate in. Nicodemus, do I really have to explain that flesh gives birth to flesh? And you have to be born again? That only the Spirit can give birth to the Spirit. And unless the Spirit rebirths you, 
then you cannot be a part of the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus was so close. So close. Knew the Bible, new church, probably a great husband, dedicated father, good friend, good, good guy. Was even pro-Jesus, right? Pro-Jesus, super into Jesus. But he had not yielded his life and trusted in Christ in order to be born again. Now, the writer of the book of John is a guy named John. The Bible wasn't always real creative in how they titled things. So, like, John wrote John, right? And John does something really, really fascinating here in the book of John. So, John is doing two things when he writes the book of John. He's recording this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. So, he's recording this historical account. And then what John does is he steps out of that record and he commentates a little bit. So John knew Jesus super well. He's Jesus' best friend. Jesus is super close to John. In fact, John's the one who took care of Jesus' mother after Jesus was crucified. And then John is the longest living disciple. He's, he's the only one that lived his full life. He wrote other books later on in the Bible too. So John's got like quite a bit of street cred. And what he does is he kind of steps out of this historical account for a second and he gives us his narrative and he explains to us what Jesus is doing and why he's pressing into Nicodemus the way that he is because he wants to make sure that we understand Jesus' heart and mind. So if John was here this weekend, he would say, guys, this is what happened and let me tell you why that happened and let me tell you what it means. And in his explanation of what it means and why he, Jesus interacted with Nicodemus this way, this is what John says. He says, this is how you summarize it, guys. What Jesus is saying is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is later on in the same chapter of John. So he's like, Jesus was leaning in because Nicodemus thought that when the Messiah showed up, he'd be king. When the Messiah showed up, he'd overthrow the Romans. He had no idea, really, it wasn't in his head that when the Messiah showed up, he'd be hung on a cross and crucified for our sins because Nicodemus didn't think he needed his sins forgiven. He thought he'd handle that himself. But God loved him so much that he understood that Nicodemus didn't understand. And so he gave his only son, this Jesus that's having this conversation with Nicodemus about needing to be born again, born from above. So that if anybody believes in him, this word believes, the way that we would say this today is trust. If anybody trusts in Jesus, not acknowledges Jesus, not likes Jesus, not recognizes Jesus is different. But trust in him, trust in him how? As the Messiah, as a savior. Not trust in himself, not trust in Nicodemus, who is the most devoted of the devout, but trust in Jesus, he'll have eternal life. Ready? 
John wants us to know God's heart on this. Guys, I want you to understand something. God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Do you know that when the Spirit of God interacts with you, he's not condemning you? When we sin and you feel guilty about it, when you sin and you feel embarrassed or you feel dirty or you feel ashamed or you feel unworthy, that is not God condemning you. That is the Spirit of God loving you. In fact, the Bible says the opposite. The Bible says when we stop feeling guilty and stop feeling ashamed and stop feeling dirty, that that's actually God judging us. When your sin doesn't bug you anymore, that's when you're in trouble spiritually. But the reason why we feel guilt and shame and embarrassment and conviction is because the Spirit of God is reminding you that you cannot be self-righteous. That's why God gave his only son. Because we cannot forgive ourselves or make ourselves holy and pleasing to God. Jesus has to do that for us. So when you feel that, that's not God wagging his finger at you. That's God waving his hand at you. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Bring that, cast that upon me. I care for you. Bring your sins to the foot of the cross. I'll forgive you. I didn't come to the world to condemn you. I came to the world to save you. Whosoever trusts in Christ is not condemned. You're not condemned for your sin. Jesus came to die for your sin. He doesn't need to repeat it and rub it in. He's reminding you of it so he can free you from it. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe, does not trust, stands condemned already because they have not believed or trusted in the name of Jesus' one and only son, Nicodemus. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a Sanhedrin. Uh, my life is purer than almost anybody else's life. And Jesus looks and says, buddy, flesh gives birth to flesh. The average Muslim lives the same life you do. The average devout Hindu lives the same life you do. The, the committed person who practices Mormonism lives the same life you do. Flesh gives birth to flesh. You cannot be self-righteous. And the fact that you think you are is what causes you to be condemned. But if you could trust me, I'm not out to get you. I didn't come to the world to condemn you. I'm out to rescue you, to free you. But you have to trust me, believe in me, And Nicodemus was so close, so close, but he thought 
He was his ticket into the kingdom of God. And he had to choose to believe that Christ alone and his work on the cross, Easter, was the only way of salvation. One of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this is because uh, this is very much my story. I have a deep passion for those of us who are Nicodemuses, because I was. I grew up in church, went four times a week, literally. Went to a Christian school. I started, I started to formally study the Bible in the first grade. So I formally studied the Bible since I was six, right? So for the past you know, 20 years. <laughs> and I knew the church inside now. I had Christian parents who loved me. Very dedicated father, very wonderful mother. My father sent us to a private Christian school my whole life. Worked in a factory. I have yet to figure out how he paid for that, but he did it. I had every spiritual advantage that you could possibly give a person. And I was Nicodemus. I could answer every question. I could run circles around almost anybody with the Bible and the subculture. In high school, I literally got awards for being a Christian. I didn't trust Christ until I was a junior in college because I thought I was self-righteous. And guys, many of you have a spiritual background. Many of us have been raised in a Christian home We've been raised at Grace Church. And you know the Bible, and you had access to the programs, and you know the talk, and you know the answers, and you know the spirituality, but you don't know the Messiah because you haven't trusted him. Nicodemus's faith belonged to the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus's relationship with God belonged to the Jewish people. Nicodemus's spiritual practices belonged to his family. But he had never decided. He never decided to surrender his life to Christ. He never decided to put his life under Jesus's definition and direction. He was pro-Jesus, big time. But he didn't trust him or really know him or love him or yield his life to him. He was so close, but which side of that line he landed on boiled down to faith. Faith is choosing to believe what I cannot and will never fully understand. Faith is not naive. Faith is not uneducated. 
but it's a decision. And Nicodemus, when he met Jesus that night, had not made that decision. When I was growing up, I didn't make that decision. I just knew the stuff. But I remember one night being a junior in college that I wanted to believe. I wanted there to be a God. I wanted a savior. I wanted to be free of my sin. I wanted to follow him. And I made a faith decision. I chose to trust. And it changed the story of my life because there's a fine line to winning and losing a tragic story and a hilarious one, right? It's fascinating with Nicodemus. Last weekend we talked about Jesus on the cross and a guy named Joseph that took his body down. I talked to you about that out of the book of Matthew. In the book of John, there's more details about that whole scenario. Verse 38, chapter 19, John, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Pilate gave permission. And so he came and took the body off the cross. He came and took the body away. Ready? He was accompanied by Nicodemus the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought the spices. And taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it, prepared it for burial, and put it in the tomb that nobody had ever used. See, Nicodemus chose to believe. He chose to trust. He agreed and he understood that flesh gives birth to flesh. See, he, he had to, by faith, let go of everything he was ever taught and everything he ever practiced. But he chose to trust Christ, this God that loved him so much his son that didn't come to condemn him, but came to rescue him, he chose to believe in that. And he became a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ. Think of what he had to give up. Think of what he walked away from. And think about how compelling the idea of a savior, a God who loves me, a God who is powerful, a God who can free me, a God who lavishes me with mercy and who is rich in mercy and full of grace. And he accepted, see, who Christ was and who Christ is and what he came to do. Right? We can be so close so close. We could almost talk ourselves into it. I did. But when I looked deep in my heart and I looked at my life and I looked at who I followed, 
I realized that my faith was my parents' faith. Not imposed on me. I just mimicked it. My relationship with God was my subculture's relationship with God. Not imposed on me. I just was pious in the ways that I was taught to be pious. But I realized my love for Christ was not mine. And I had to choose to believe. I had to kind of do what Nicodemus did in order to actually receive the salvation and the life that Jesus died to give me. Are you close? Are you close? The decision that you make determines how that story plays out. And Christ is calling you not to know about him, not to be religious, but to accept the salvation, the freedom, the rescue, the love that he came to give. Jesus, in these still moments, would you through your Holy Spirit press deep into our hearts? Lord, if our faith is a borrowed faith or a historical faith or a faith that's in the head but not in the heart, Would you in this moment press deeply into that? And through your Holy Spirit, God, maybe in a way that we've never really experienced before, would you draw us to yourself? Would you reassure us of your love? Would you make us aware of our own sin and desire to be self-righteous? And then would you assure us of your mercy and your grace and your compassion and remind us of your work on the cross? And God, would you bring us to a point of faith? And then we have to decide. So Jesus, my prayer is that in this moment, those of us who are so close would cross the line like Nicodemus did, and choose to believe. Help them, make them restless, give them peace as they decide whether to come to you right now. Press into us, God, and make this a holy, sacred moment.